Today, we're not going to do a lesson. Listening to what uh, mental health professionals say, as George mentioned earlier, it is important to do two things for our children. Number one is to make them feel secure and to know that they are safe and to know that we love them and we are with them, which means that we turn off our televisions during this time. But the second thing we do is we keep routines and we keep regularity and we let them know that your world has not come apart. In some ways the world has come apart, but your world has not. So we did, while our children were here, the joy candle. What a day for the joy candle to come up. We are going to talk about hope and we're going to talk about joy and we're going to talk about it in a roundabout way. The only thing is I'm not going to preach to you. We're going to do an extended version of what are you thinking? I'm going to make some remarks on the basis of the initial responses that I've seen so far about how we tend to react in things like this. And then I'm going to open up for what are you thinking earlier than I would typically do that. And then I have a bunch of notes of things that I might say if it seems appropriate. So if you all don't talk, I've got a backup plan. (laughs) So yesterday and Friday, while I watched the news, I wept. And I wept when I heard parents feeling guilt that they were going to hold their children that evening and their neighbors were not. And I wept when I heard about parents running to the firehouse only to find out that they would not be with their children that night. And I wept with a reporter who was unable to contain his own tears, and I wept again with the president when he couldn't contain his. And so, like you, this has been very emotionally demanding for me, And the scripture that the children read today was a scripture that is an Advent scripture, and it is today's scripture, but I thought the scripture that Robin posted on How's Your Soul was a much more appropriate reading for this morning. So it is an Advent text, and it does address the issue of hope, but it does so in this kaleidoscope of what this whole human experience does in which we find hope The connection between the text and hope isn't immediately evident, but it is a Christmas text, and we don't usually read it because it's so painful. Herod flew into a rage and commanded the murder of every little boy two years old and under who lived in Bethlehem and the surrounding hills. He decided on babies under two because of the information he'd gotten about Jesus' birth. To those who lived through the tragedy, it brought to mind the words of Jeremiah's sermon from years and years before. A wail was heard in Ramah, weeping, lamenting. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing all comfort, all solace. Her children were gone. They were dead. They were buried. Now you can understand why so few choose this text to read during Advent, but it does seem to be pointed today. We are collectively torn over the murder of five-year-olds and six-year-olds and ten-year-olds. We are broken 
by the actions of another man 2,000 years later. Another wounded man, another fearful man, another broken man. And so this text speaks to us today. And it speaks of being partakers in a shared horror. Participating with and sharing with this horror across the ages. By comparison, we live in an insulated world. By comparison, we live in a world with rounded edges and child-safe latches. But even so, we participate in horror with the ages. Our world can be an awful place filled with awful things. And from time to time, these things come up. And they catch us by surprise It shouldn't be, but they do. They surprise us when these things happen. And when they do, we have some typically human responses. And I want to talk about two responses that I've seen so far. And then I want to open up and talk about your response. And then, depending on how the conversations go, I'll talk about the hoped-for response, a way that we could respond in the midst of this. I received a text yesterday. Next slide, you can read it along with me. It said, Doug, remember what I said about rethinking hell? Well, forget all that. I want to change my mind. I want a hell. And I want it to be a torturous, horrible, and burning place. That's what happens when horror overtakes us. It's a reactionary response. It's a punitive response. And it's not a very deep or spiritual response. It doesn't reflect the elevated love your enemy perspective that Jesus taught us. To be sure, it is a reactionary response, a false self-response. Sure it is. But if your mind goes there today, I want to encourage you to give yourself a break because it is how our brains work. We survived on the savanna by having this response. We survived with wild animals and warring tribes by having this response. It's the fight or flight response. It's part of the equipment that we come with. It's part of the brains that we have. You have it. I have it. And yes, the spiritual journey talks to us about transcending that and moving above it and moving beyond it. But if you hold that response, I would encourage you to extend yourself a little bit of grace because we react. It is what we do. And when the worlds that we work so hard to make safe reveal themselves to be as unsafe as they can be, and when we see that happen, we do have a visceral, emotional, chemical, psychological, emotional response. It is that lashing out, fighting back. We want vengeance. We want to create enough pain so that those who would wound us would never do it again. That is part of who we are. It's the equipment that we work with. And part of what we do when we gather together in a spiritual journey context as part of a community is we help one another. We help one another process that. And I encourage you to do that. I encourage us to help one another remember the spiritual journey, elevate our vision, and be lifted to a higher response. The second response that I saw, you can go to the next slide, 
on our Facebook group, Gary articulated for us something that I think well, I appreciate a great deal because he articulated one of the spiritual journey's primary conundrums. Where is God when these horrible things happen? And there is a response that says, I need an answer. I need an answer. Now, Gary didn't say everything I'm about to say, but I've had that conversation so many times, I'm just going to expand on what he said to what I know is the response that many people have. In my strong need for an answer, don't bother with the religious platitudes. Because many times people will say at times of great pain and great suffering as we are going through now, that I've heard the religious answers. I've heard about free will, and I've heard about how free choice is required for love, and I've heard about how suffering is a result of the free choice and sin. But many respond in this process. Let's be honest together. Our religion tells us that God made this system. God is not subject to this system. God created it. Our religion tells us that God is the originator of everything, that God knows the end from the beginning and knew the system would end up with genocide and would end up with the murder of school children. And yet, as originator, God went ahead and made it. So don't bother with religious platitudes. The God that religious people teach holds some responsibility here. And this very common response goes on and it says, religion seems to want it both ways. We create justifications that don't allow us to blame God. Lots of rhetorical defenses that let God off the hook, but at the same time, we are required to praise God for the good stuff. How convenient for God. I'd like a job like that where I get affirmation for the good that I do but muted silence imposed for anything bad. Now, few human experiences are as horrific as the slaughter of children. Murdering a child is an ultimate violation. And when we hit that magnitude of evil and that magnitude of wrong, Gary's post articulates what many feel. Where is the justice in the universe? Where is the safety in the universe? Where is the right and the good and the beauty? Where is God in the universe? Now, he finished his post by saying what is commonly said in these kinds of soul searching questions What if there is no God? This is a question that many religious people don't feel permission to ask. doesn't mean that we don't feel it and we don't sense it. It just means that somehow the constraints don't allow us to ask that question. What if there is no God? What if there is no ultimate bar of justice? What if there is no ultimate appeals court for all of life's suffering? What if that just isn't? What if evil is not called to account ultimately? And what if there is no divine father 
watching over us and keeping us safe. And I don't know what your newsfeed does on Facebook, but I am seeing a constant stream of those questions coming across mine. Lots of people grappling, struggling, asking those questions. Because for many of us, we were taught in our Christian heritage that God is the ultimate source of the buck stops here. That God created this young man, and God knew that the system that would darken his heart would exist, and God saw Friday coming, and with eyes wide open, God went ahead and made the system the way that it is. And so the post was an articulation of a very common visceral response. At best, God has some answering to do. At worst, we've sold one another a pipe dream, a lick and a promise. And the Jewish side of, the, of our religious family had to face these same questions after the Holocaust. That was a very difficult time for them and their constructs and the way that they imagined God. I'm not sure they've recovered. And as Gary's posts suggests, when the voltage of a violation is turned up high enough, sometimes our religious constructs can't bear up under the load. When the voltage is turned up high enough, these comfortable religious constructs can't bear up under the load. So those are two very common responses. I guess that you have perhaps seen them as I have, thought them as I have at times in my life. I want to fight, flight, punish. I want to exact justice. And what if my religion is just a pipe dream? What if this thing that I have held out just isn't? So God is bigger than that. So as soon as you create a construct for God, there's one thing you know about it, and that is that it is inadequate. Which gives us permission to go from construct to construct to construct. And a lot of the uh, responses that people have about um, how could God do this are rooted in a singular construct. And it is God, the superhuman being. When we think of God in human shape and human form, then it's very difficult for us to imagine how God could let this thing happen. But when we talk about, as we've had, God as the ground of being, or God as the fire, or God as the rhythm, or God as the song, or any one of these other ways of thinking, we begin to move past that and we begin to ask a different set of questions. So I would encourage you to read this post as it talks about um, another way of viewing God in the midst of suffering. But we've talked about that at length. You'll remember this way of thinking. If we think of everything as a connected oneness, if you, if you followed Gary's post, you saw Nathan come up a little bit later and he said something along the lines of, when we start thinking in these kinds of patterns, we realize that in some real way, I am the victim and the victim is me. In some real way, I am the shooter and the shooter is me. In some real way, we are part of an aspen metaphor, not an oak metaphor, that we all part of this connected oneness. When that happens, the metaphor of body becomes really helpful when we start thinking about ourselves as a body that has individual members, but as Paul says, every one members one of the other. 
When we start speaking in those terms, it begins to create a different set of questions, a different set of responses. Instead of saying, why would the being out there come and do this or not stop this or some such thing, we start thinking is, here is the rhythm. And we know the rhythm. We've learned it is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. And we know that rhythm's always going on, and we know that rhythm is in Raleigh, and we know that rhythm is in Sandy Hook, and we know that rhythm goes across the earth and in every context. And now we have a choice. We can dance with that rhythm, or we can do something else. And we can live some other way that's apart from that rhythm. And we can bring ourselves back, and we can dance with that rhythm, or we can move away from that. And the thing is... That set of questions is very different than why would this being do this? It's, am I dancing or am I not dancing? Which I brought up at the very beginning was, I can't think any longer in terms of a supreme being doing this kind of thing. I have to think in terms of what goes on in the heart of this young man. What Bob talked about is what goes on in this young man's life, that we are not somehow touching that. And that becomes a different set of questions. How do we care for the body? Paul tells us when there's a weak member of the body, we make special care for that. When there's a vulnerable member of the body, we make special care for that. And so our response, and the response I hope we as a community have, is that these kinds of episodes re-heighten our awareness of the role that we have in this God, everything, you, me, oneness. That we have a function to play, and it is the caring for and the healing of that which is broken and that which is in need of repair. So, at the same time that this was coming around, something else came around. 21 pictures that will restore your faith in humanity. Scroll down a little bit and let's just look at them quickly. Here is a group of Christians who gathered at a gay pride parade and said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the way that we've treated you. Keep going. Here's another picture of someone in the gay pride parade responding in reconciliation. Keep going. (laughs) Here is a... Uh, a group of older Japanese who said, we will go into Fukushima so that our young people don't have to, so that we will face radiation at the end of our life and they won't have to. Here are some people who are saving a sheep. You can go through this relatively quickly. They end up saving the sheep at the end. Here's a book uh, owner that says, if you don't have any money, come in and I'll let you use a book. Keep going. There's uh, uh, two people in a race. Instead of vying to avoid last place, they help each other across the line. Keep going. Uh, this was a cute one. You can read about that online. Keep going. This was handed in with a very large, larger than normal tip, and it said, you remind me of our son who died. And it's your kindness and gentleness that we see in that. And so here's this large tip. Here's the subway giving away free meals on uh, Fridays. This guy spent $32,000 cleaning the clothes of unemployed people so that they could go for job interviews. Keep going. This is the picture of someone taking off their shoes to give to a homeless girl in Rio. And so when I think about the response that we have, we don't live in Connecticut. So we couldn't have gotten to this young man because we don't live in that community. But there's somebody in Raleigh who is isolating right now. There's someone in Raleigh 
who is laboring under a crushing load of self-loathing and self-condemnation. And there's a good chance you'll come across them on your path. There's a good chance that there is a kindness that you can extend yourself to care for. There's a good chance that you can participate in your own recovery by caring for someone else in theirs. There's a good chance that you can be looking to say, as part of this connected oneness body, there is a role that I have, and it is to cover the wounds and to cover the hurts and to repair the breach and to fix what's broken. And we can do that in certain degrees. And that can be a response that is rooted in another narrative, in another way of thinking about the God, you, me, oneness. People are spending a lot of energy thinking why. Uh, One of the posts that I saw that came by was just five whys in a row. Why, 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 why. And that's a lot of energy that's spent And that's rooted in the idea that we have that is the if-then idea that we picked up in our religion. Very early on, started far back as Deuteronomy. It says, if, then. If you obey the commandments of the Lord, then you will be blessed in the city, you'll be blessed in the country, you'll be blessed when you go in, you'll be blessed when you go out. Then you will be the head and not the tail. And we get this idea in our head. We got this idea 4,000 years ago that this was an equation that there was a put in a quarter, there was a get out of a goody. We thought it was that way. Now we thought a lot of things back then. We thought that genocide was okay. We thought that slavery was okay. We thought that polygamy was okay. We thought a lot of things that were okay, and we've questioned all those, and we've kind of grown to a deeper understanding of the heart of the divine. But somehow that one lingers, if then. And all of this energy goes into if-then, meaning the energy doesn't go into what Robin just said. And that is, when this happens, why God becomes an irrelevant point if God isn't a being up there dispensing goodies. If the divine is this epicenter of life, then we can find it. And episodes like this become reminders, tragic reminders. God, that it wouldn't have come this way that I'm reminded, but now I am reminded I must find life. And I must pursue it again for my children, for the people in my city, and for the people that are broken that I run into, and the people who are recovering alongside me, and the people who are going through this process with me. I must be this agent of finding the divine life and move that. That becomes a profound response. Life and death are before you, Moses choose life, pursue life. We Christians have been um, notoriously hostile toward construct reimagining. We have had the idea that it is this way. We wrote it down in a book, for goodness sakes. Now you've got to believe this way to be one of us. And that made things kind of rigid And rigid constructs get very constraining when you're growing. And when you grow and when you move, rigidity gets tough. Now that doesn't mean that we don't pay attention to tradition because tradition is really the embodiment of a lot of wisdom and we do well to heed that wisdom. But there are times in which we need permission to rethink our views. 
Well, I imagine the people who came to you and helped you understand what God was doing that you wanted to hit had a construct that made sense. And it gets brittle and it gets hurtful when it doesn't have flexibility to it. So one of the things that I've been saying for a long time here is as we're rethinking our story, you have permission. You can get it wrong and God's not going to smite you or strike you. You can get it wrong as a way of saying, well, what if God's this way instead of that way? What if the spiritual journey works this way instead of that way? That is okay. You can do that. And in a context of community, we heighten our chances of getting a better and better construct. We'll never have a good one. We'll never have the right one because God is transcendent, can't be fit into any construct. But we'll get better at it by doing it together. We'll get better at it by consulting with history. We'll get better at it by looking at our scriptures. We'll get better at it by thinking of it comprehensively. But you're not going to get struck down for reconsidering God while you go through times like this. That was one thing. A second thing is, on the news, this came up in the first lesson. Some priests were interviewed and they were talking about the community of Sandy Hook. It speaks very well for their healing. It speaks very well for the fact that working across denominations, they are working together in a connected oneness and they are strengthening and supporting one another. I don't know what a New England village is like. I've never lived in one or even been in one. But I imagine that there is something there that is very healthy, just built into the system. Which brings up uh, another interview that uh, I heard about uh, the people who did counseling in the aftermath of Columbine, who said, in many ways, we as the outside experts were powerless. The power existed in the community speaking one to another. Basically, all we did was give them tools to talk to one another. And um, so I want to reinforce breathing groups, life story groups, discovery dinners, these ways of moving past this isolating force that is our society and move into an integrated oneness. And uh, so I pray that for us as a community.